Well, social scientists have found it hard to describe and explain what's happened in Korea over the past 60 years. In fact, they've actually given it a term, a term that usually social scientists would not give. The term is this, miracle on the river Han is what they describe what's happened in Korea over the past 60 years. After World War II and the Korean War, South Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. It was a consistent punching bag from China and Japan before that, and those ethnic tensions remained. It's a history I knew a little bit about, but I didn't know firsthand how bad it was or accounts of how bad it was in Korea after World War II and the Korean War until this past few months I've been in an academic program um, and a seminary and half of the students in the program, there's only 10 of us in this cohort, half of them are Korean Americans and I've gotten to spend a lot of time with them. I was with them for the whole week and we'll be together for three years together. And I got to hear, and this one gentleman um, that we spent a lot of time with, about what his father and his grandfather experienced after World War II in the Korean War. And what they experienced was this, that the cult, he said the culture was so impoverished that many of them thought his father and his grandfather and many outside observing what was going on in South Korea, that this was a culture that was beyond repair. And the transformation over the past 60 years has truly been a miracle. Missionaries came to Korea. Missionaries that said, you know what, even though people might think this culture is beyond repair, we are going to spread the gospel. Christianity was next to nothing in South Korea, and by 1970, 18% of Korea had become Christian. By 2000, 31% of Korea had become Christian. 50,000 churches are now in South Korea in a population of 50 million people, and many social scientists say that Christianity has saturated the population, and it is now the top 25, one of the top 25 richest countries in the world. These missionaries looked at what was going on, they set cultural experiences and differences aside, and they shared the gospel. And now, South Korea is the second most in sending missionaries compared to any other country, sending 13,000 plus a year. Even though it's one-eighth the population of the United States, it is only second most the United States in sending missionaries. And it is almost the most sending missionaries to countries that used to invade them and kill them. China and Japan, North Korea, these missionaries come from South Korea. Today, we are going to see a culture in this passage that a group of people thought was so backwards, it was irredeemable. So backwards, they would not even eat with them. We are going to see a miracle happen among the Gentiles that will break cultural barriers. It is this kind of work that led to a miracle in South Korea. And as the book of Acts says, it's this kind of work that turned a world upside down. So let's look together, shall we? 
Acts chapter 10. We're going to take it in sections. That's what I like to do with narrative. Let the narrative unfold and see the drama as we are in it together. It is a longer reading. I'm going to take it in three parts. Today, I think you'll find it interesting. Here we go. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 33. I'll just start with verses 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he, st uh, he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have, been, have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're just joining us. Welcome. We're going through the book of Acts this winter and this spring. And Acts documents the first 30 years of the growth of the church after Christ ascended to heaven. And as Christ ascended to heaven, he told his disciples, he said, the spirit will come so the gospel would go forward to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, it's been 10 years since Christ has ascended. And you might be wondering, what's happened in 10 years? Well, his promise has taken place at Pentecost in, um, in Jerusalem. Thousands came to know him, and the gospel spread throughout Jerusalem. And then we saw, even through um, the stoning of Stephen, Philip, one of the deacons, goes out to Samaria. And there we see many, many come to Christ in the re regions of Judea and Samaria. That's what we've seen over the past few chapters. But here is now a hurdle that might seem insurmountable. Reaching the Gentiles. Maybe you don't know that word Gentile. It's actually from a Latin word that means the same people or same nation. Now, all Gentiles are not of the same people and the same nation, but for the Hebrews, they were non-Hebrews. These are all these non-Israelites, and they were called Gentiles. That's most of us, okay? We are the Gentiles. And it's kind of hard to realize and comprehend the division that was between the Gentiles and the Jews, Gentiles to the Jews were called dogs. You did not go and eat in a Gentile's house, and usually Gentiles would not come and eat in your home. They were considered unclean, and to even be around them and fellowship with them would make a Hebrew unclean. Now, the Samaritans are one thing, but they're half-breeds. You know, they have some of that Hebrew blood and understanding of the Torah and all those kind of things. But these Gentiles, they're a whole nother breed. Pun intended, right? So now we hear in this narrative of Cornelius, and it comes in a time that is no coincidence in how Luke lays out the narrative. Remember, 
Luke first describes how Peter went to Lydda. And there was a man that was paralyzed there. And he healed him. That is an amazing miracle. And then he went 10 more miles away to Joppa. And there he healed Tabitha, who was dead, and brought her back to life. Now Caesarea is 31 miles even further away from Jerusalem north. Even the name Caesarea would give a division between Hebrews and Gentiles. Comes from, of course, Caesar. It was named after Augustus Caesar, Caesarea. It was a region taken over by the Romans when they took over the region of Judea. It became the Roman provincial capital that ruled over Judea, where Jerusalem is. There was a garrison there, and here we have this individual, Cornelius, who is a captain, over 600 men. If you want to think about Gentile control, a true Gentile, all those kind of things, it would be this town, this place, all the bad things you could think of how the Gentiles and the Romans have taken over Israel and the division, it is seen here. A paralyzed man that is able to walk, a raising a dead woman to life, it makes sense that Luke shares this in the trilogy last. This is the harder work. This is the greater thing. That there would actually be God coming to the Gentiles. Well, Luke said it earlier. He said, things impossible to man are possible to God. Well, if we read this narrative, we might not think it's a big deal, right? This Gentile that we hear about, he's a captain. Seems like a pretty important position. Someone that has character. He's religious. He gives generously. He prays continuously. Later in the passage, it shares how the Jews respected him. So why would he need something more? Why would an angel come and say, you need to get Peter? find this passage profound. That God is after people that Jews say, no way. And he's after people too that we might say, oh, they're good. See, Cornelius needed salvation. He needed something that did not come from all his religious practices, whether it was pagan practices, people debate, whether it was Jewish practices, although not really a Jewish convert, we don't know. It could have been either. But he was a religious, good person. He needed something else that came from Christ. Christ's righteousness. He needed the good news. He needed forgiveness from sins. Nothing he could do of himself. Some of us might say and look at a person like Cornelius, if he isn't good, I'm doomed. Well, this is the good news of the gospel. No matter the culture, no matter the pedigree, no matter how good you are, it is a work of God coming to us that saves. You know, the great thing about having young kids in my house is that you hear the truth. Right? Kids don't hold back, especially kids that come to our home, right? You know, we just have to be honest, Aaron and I, 
you know, I'm a pastor. She's a pastor's wife. Um, our kids usually have their, their hair combed, right? They usually have good manners. You know, it's a pretty put-together family, except if you actually are with us, you can see we're not really put together. But that's a lot of how their friends see us, right? Especially in a public school, right? And my girls put me to shame in the way that they share the gospel with their friends and talk about Christianity. And for many of their friends, that picture of Christians, the pictures of who Christians are, can be a sense of, oh, you're a goody two-shoes, or you're a Christian, or whatever it might be, you know? They probably say things that other people that are adults that we know think about us that don't really say it, right? This is what I tell my girls, and hopefully what Aaron and I tell ourselves and tell our friends. It is nothing of ourselves. It is not us. It is what God has done in us. That is the good news. That there's no barrier if you have a broken family. If you come from a family that doesn't have money, doesn't have good manners, doesn't have your hair combed, doesn't have a certain color, whatever it might be, that you can say to your friends in public school, it is not of us, it is of God, and we celebrate him and not us. That is the good news. And that's what needs to come to Cornelius. This is the very interesting thing about this passage. There are really two major miracles. One, the conversion of Cornelius and the Gentiles. But equally impressive is the breaking down of the cultural barriers that keeps Peter from sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. Two miracles. Well, let's see that second one in action, shall we? Verse 9. We go 9 to 23. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop above the, uh, about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he um, fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again, a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at, at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house. They stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, um, 
an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. Well, here we have two scenes colliding. The story of Cornelius is happening at one time, and these men are going to find Peter. And here, then Cornelius has a vision, and now Peter has, another, uh, has a vision. And these two groups are going to come together, both being encountered by God. Now, it's very clear that this isn't a literal description, that this is something figurative that is coming down from heaven. And the four corners, right, are probably, uh, this might be meaning the four corners of the earth, maybe the north, south, east, west, you know, meaning that. And here comes down these animals, right, these, this food while Peter is hungry. Many of us might have some, our own visions of what this might look like. When I read it, I usually think of uh, my experience at that restaurant, Texas to Brazil. You know that restaurant? It's the, like the Brazilian restaurant where they bring the meat towards you and just carve it right off, right? That's what I'm picturing because I like to eat meat, right? That's not probably what Peter is picturing when it comes down. Instead, he's probably picturing animals that are unclean that he should not touch and be around. That is what's going on. And here, God is telling them, him, kill and eat these things. And Peter responds not one time to object, not two times, but God has to talk to him three times. If you didn't know, there's something about Peter in three times, okay? If you know a little bit about Peter. One, he denied that he knew Christ three times, right? And then when Christ came back to reinstall him into ministry, he said, feed my sheep three times. And... Here again, we have God talking to him three more times. You would think, right? The one that Jesus said he would build his church on, an apostle, a witness of the resurrection, one that heard Jesus say, it is not what you put into your body that matters, that defiles you, but what comes out of you that defiles you, already talking about what we eat, also, Jesus that went to Capernaum and worked with Gentiles and said, I've come for all nations, that you would think after all of those things that Peter would get it. But he still doesn't get it. Many times if we read Peter enough, we sometimes just want to shake him, right? Dude, don't you get it, bro? Don't you see? You know, Peter is a mirror to us. He's really good news for us. As Christians, we continue not to get it. After being told directly. But God continues to sanctify us. As he continues to sanctify Peter. If some of you are perplexed by this vision, you're not alone. Peter was too. But you see that the vision is juxtaposed with the arrival of these Gentiles that starts to make the vision more clear to Peter. Many times who Peter says or the Hebrews say are clean and un, uh, are common 
are the Gentiles. And now they are at his door. Would he continue to call them unclean and common? And you see it's starting to click that he allows these individuals to come in and host them before they go out on their journey. See, God is not only after the lost, but he's after his own people to break down the barriers of sharing with different cultures and other people. In our own church, we have heard testimonies and stories about people from different cultures, from different places, coming to know Jesus. We heard from Cindy Love, right? Who talked about a story that many of us might be familiar with now because now it's in this big movie, Jesus Revolution. But Jesus, Jesus Revolution, this movie that just came out, it documents a guy named Lonnie Frisbee, a hippie, part of the counterculture, right? That was, you know, out west, predominantly in San Francisco at that time and spread other places. He came to know Jesus in that place. And he had a, started having a relationship with Chuck Smith, who was very hesitant to having hippies in his church. You can watch the movie and see all these things that happened, right? The amazing movement that became Calvary Chapel, the Vineyard Movement, something that we love to celebrate. And some of us in our own church have been witness of that coming of Jesus and that revival, praise God, to break down cultural barriers between hippies and churchgoers for the gospel to go forward. Thing is, we love to celebrate stuff like this. We love to celebrate the idea of coming to the Gentiles, coming to hippies. But actually, when it becomes our cultural moment, when we're in it ourselves, it's harder to see. And we also have more objections to reaching groups where there is division. I had a Spanish teacher in high school. Her name was Senora Risser. I went to Madison West High School in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm sure all the things that you think about Madison, right, I'm going to explain to you right now, right? If you didn't know, Madison, right, like all these things about Madison, you know, you know, 20 square miles, you're right, like surrounded against reality or something like that because how liberal it is and all those things, right? Well, Senora Risser, her husband... Uh, was Fred Risser. If you, in the Madison area and you follow politics, Fred Risser is the longest serving state legislator in U.S. history that represented um, the state Senate um, in a district in Madison, right? So you can imagine what his politics was, right? And I have his wife as my teacher, I'm going to be very honest about myself, so here you go, okay? I knew this. So on my Spanish binder, I put a huge bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker says this. Annoy a liberal. Work hard and smile. Senor Risser, the wife of Fred Risser, the state senator from Wisconsin. Right? We're snickering, right? We're laughing. It might show we are closer to these divisions than we realize. Let me anticipate your objections. 
You might say political differences are not the same as cultural barriers. Well, I think that's changed in America. It seems nowadays, ideological differences have almost become cultural differences. Where articles are written where you live is what ideology you are. And you run to different places based on your ideology. Your psychology decides what party you're a part of. Your very DNA can decide whether you are conservative or liberal. That we have created cultural differences on ideological lines in America. In fact, the language of clean and unclean sounds more familiar to our cultural talking than we would care to admit. You know, the stories like this, they're romantic. The gospel coming to Gentiles. Stories of Jesus' revolution as we as evangelicals flood to and spend lots of money to go see this movie. We love it. It's romantic. Because such were some of us. Here's the thing. As the Spirit works, as we're going to, we're not even going to get to this part, but the conclusion of this is the Gentiles come to faith, right? That, that Peter shares the gospel and they come to faith in droves. But as we go through the book of Acts, there's all these complications. Complications of Jews and Gentiles and the messiness of their talking to each other, of fellowshiping with each other, of different cultures coming together. If any of you were part of the Calvary Chapel movement and the Vineyard movement, you realize the complexity that happened in those movements. It was complex and it was messy. These same complexities are in other cultures and reaching other cultures. Race in America. Urban versus rural. Immigrants in our country. Refugees in our country. Liberals, conservatives. It will be complex. It will be messy. But none of that stopped God working to try to reach those people. He was still at work, not just in the Gentiles, but in the Christians to break down these barriers. He initiated because he wanted to reach the nations. You know what happens when you're in that complexity, when you're in those kind of relationships, when you're around those kind of people? Hopefully, you realize more and more God's grace upon you, that it was him that saved you, nothing of yourself. That you don't relate to people with pride and arrogance, or I am better than you, that you realize God's grace upon you. And that's what God's doing to his Peter, right there. That he would further understand his grace for him and his love for him. 
He is not done with us. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, for I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in, in um, bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. And your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Many times a misnomer in this passage that it's just about Cornelius when it's about more than just Cornelius, he's brought his relatives, he's brought his family, he's brought his friends to hear what Peter has to say. And we see from the get-go the cultural divisions that are there, right? At one point, maybe because of his uh, pagan background, uh, Cornelius bows and worships uh, Peter, thinking that he might be a god. And Peter, of course, is saying, listen, I am not a god. I'm not worthy of worship, right? Trying to point like Christ is the only one worthy of worship. And then you see on the other end the misunderstanding that the Hebrews have towards the Gentiles that we cannot even fellowship with you. We cannot even eat with you. This is really the very battle of humanity throughout time. At one point we elevate humanity as idols, and then at the other end, sometimes we demean humanity that they are not good enough to talk to. And the gospel puts us at the right place. That all of us have sinned. And at the same time, all of us are made in the image of God. And then you get, if you're an evangelist, right? If you like to share the gospel, or maybe you don't like to share the gospel, this is, the, this is what you want, Right? Someone to come to this place that says, now therefore we're all here in the presence of God. Tell us, right? <laughs> Tell us what God has to say. Don't you want someone to say that to you sometime, like about the gospel? I'm ready to hear what the good news is, right? And Peter has it, right? You know what? Think about how much groundwork has been laid to get to this place. God's communicating to Israel that you'll be the light to the nations. Christ coming and showing that he is for all the nations. The disciples being told and taught this. God working upon Peter's heart. God working upon Cornelius' heart. 
It took a work of God to get to that place. Uh, there's a tendency among pastors, if you're around church long enough, uh, tendency among pastors to make the current historical moment the most important moment of all time, right? We're in the worst moment of history, right? That's what they say. Or this is the apex of which way is it going to turn, right? We're at the crossroads, right? I'm just going to say to you right now, I don't know if we're at the crossroads, okay? I have no idea. We're in this moment right now as people, right? I think there were worse times in history, right? Um, I think God can work in any time in history. There's not a more ideal time. There's not a worse time, okay? I will say this. I think we are in a unique time. And with that unique time, there come some challenges of how we do things. I think the unique time is this. Uh, for, you know, since the Roman world uh, um, made Christianity uh, the religion of Rome, the West has been predominantly ruled by Christendom. What I'm going to say, Judeo-Christian ethics. It's just kind of the air we breathe. That's kind of the foundation we've lived in. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, that's just what you have been in. We have seen in the West in the past 50 years, mostly in Europe and now here in the United States, the idea of living in Christendom is going away. 30 to 40 percent of 20s and 30s in America now identify themselves as nuns, meaning they are secular, they have no religion, and what many have argued is that we now live in a secular age. What has filled the vacuum with Christendom ending is ideological drivenness, both liberal and conservative, where the new religion that has filled people is making sure we have political power. We see... Like the gospel to the Gentiles, God is preparing us for this time and how we reach people in this age. I'm going to give you some very practical ways to do this right now, okay? And I'm going to continue to prepare you as David has and Luke has of what we're going to be doing as a church. In May, in lieu of family practice, practice in community groups, for three to four weeks, right here in the church on Wednesday night, we're going to talk about evangelism specifically. What it means to share your faith and how we do that. And we would love for you to come there. That will be even more practical. But to prepare you, here are some three practical ways. Number one, pray for God to work. Pray for people in your neighborhood, your colleagues, by name, that he would work upon their hearts. That is what God does. He prepares the way as we see in the story. But not just pray for them, pray for you. That you would have the ability to reach out past cultural barriers, to listen well, to care for others, to have eyes to see those that are being spurred by the Spirit to talk about spiritual things. That's number one. Number two, break down the barriers of hostility. Neighbors, 
coworkers, those with different cultural differences. Invite them into your life. Invite them in for a meal. Invite them for games, to go out together, to throw the frisbee, to play volleyball. I don't know what it is what you do. Invite them into your life. Show hospitality. And number three, the great conclusion of this passage. When Peter is all teed up to ready to share what it is, he knows what to say. He is able to communicate what the gospel is, the good news, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he came in flesh, the God-man, both God and human, to live among us a perfect life that we could not live. He lived it perfectly, but because of that, because of the sin of the world that is from us, he was crucified. That is what we give God. And he took all our sins upon himself. He took that, imputed our sins upon himself. And then he gave his righteousness to us so that we would be called sons and daughters of God. Listen, I know what it's like to grow up in evangelicalism. I know the narrative right now. Befriend people, listen to them, care for them, build trust. Listen, look at me. I believe that wholeheartedly. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be rude. Love people, build trust, listen to them. But you have to be able to share what the gospel is. You have to say it. We talk about our books and our movies and our sports more like we worship them than we worship him. We have to say it. And this is a great moment in time to say it. And God has a sense of humor with me. I went to college in Washington, D.C., and my roommate was the liberal of liberals. <laughs> and I roomed with him for four years. We loved each other well. You know what? He wasn't a Christian, but we had Bible studies in our dorm room. And he invited his friends that were secular, and I invited my friends that were Christians. And we all became friends. And the fruit of that is still being seen. Who might these people be in your life? Maybe it's the guy in your work that drinks bush light. Right? And chews. That's not you. That's a cultural barrier. Maybe it's someone that you know that speaks Spanish. That's an immigrant. That's a cultural barrier. Maybe it's someone that lives next to you that puts up those political signs that you would like to tear down. That's a cultural barrier. 
what does Peter say? God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Anyone. Maybe you come to church feeling that way. I'm just common. I'm unclean. I'm here to tell you we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And each has gone his own, gone his own, gone, has gone his own way. But Peter spoke to this family, to everyone, and this is what he said. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Here is Christ. Trust in him and you can be saved. Don't think you are above it and above any others. You need him.